Yes, indeed. Welcome on into the Check Your Brain podcast. Tony Mazur, your host and producer and guest booker and everything extraordinaire with this. That is a song from the 1970s, if you can't tell, and that is from Mad Magazine. And it was like one of those novelty songs. I don't know if it became a hit, but this is the era of the disco duck and uh, Rick's, or was it uh, Ray Stevens, the the streak, and those kind of songs, Guitar Zan. And so there were a lot of novelty songs, Mr. Jaws by Dickie Goodman. And Mad Magazine got into it, and you would buy the Mad Magazine, and in the back you would get a copy that you could put on your turntable of this single. And... Yeah, it's goofy by today's standards. It's probably goofy by 1970s standards as well, but the song Making Out <laughs> from Mad Magazine. So we're going to talk a little mad today. We're going mad here on the Check Your Brain podcast, and my guest here is the former senior editor who started out as an editor and a contributor to Mad and spent 33 years with them up until their move out to from New York out to Burbank, California, and... He was, he's kind of seen a lot of it, and his name is Joe Rayola. He's also the creator of The Joy of Censorship and part of the theater within the annual John Lennon tribute they have each year. And uh, Joe is a real renaissance man. He's not just a Mad Magazine guy. He's done basically everything. He's a stand-up comic. He's a performer. He's done a lot of behind-the-scenes work and writing and uh, editing and everything, and really has kind of done it all, like I said. And I got a chance to talk to him, and I've wanted to talk to him for a number of years, as you'll hear, my excitement of talking about some of these old Mad Magazine uh, writers and the artists, and some actually did both of them. I mean, you think about some of the names, like some of the great writers who did the parodies of Frank Jacobs to... Dick D. Bartolo, Arnie Kogan, some of the artists, Paul Coker, Jack Davis, Mort Drucker, Angelo Torres, who, by the way, Angelo Torres, I'm going to play it here in a second. One of my, it's still to this day, is one of my favorite Mad Magazine parodies was their All in the Family parody. And it was called Gall in the Family Fair. <laughs> I just remember reading it growing up. It just, this is hilarious. It, it was so well written. And uh, they also, but they have the, I guess they were able to put out the audio version of it, which is, makes it kind of interesting. But it was funny reading that, especially for, I think it came out in like 1973. But it was really cool uh, getting an opportunity to talk about some of these guys that, uh, that were a part of it. And, you know, Don Martin, Antonio Prohias, uh, Dave Berg, Al Jaffe, Duck Edwing, all these other great contributors that if you're a Mad Magazine fan that grew up like I did, and somebody who's, you know, you could be my father's age. Heck, you could probably even be my grandfather's age. And would really appreciate uh, some of these artists and people who've paved the way and how many people in the entertainment industry and those who got into comedy in some way, shape, or form, whether it was writing or drawing or stand-up or, or improv that were directly influenced. I mean, heck, Weird Al was hugely influenced by Mad Magazine and, and the parody songs and what they had going on. 
So I thought this was a really cool interview that uh, I was able to arrange and talk to him a little bit and uh, a, a lot of fun. I actually did a much longer with him than I thought. We talked about just his relationship with Mad and his relationship with uh, William Bill Gaines, uh, the creator of Mad and who had been around until 1992, and the transition period after Gaines died and the transition over moving the company out to Burbank. So got to talk about all of that, including his own career. So here on the Check Your Brain podcast, which by the way, if you like what you hear, make sure you subscribe. New episodes come out every Wednesday for free on your favorite pod- podcast platform. And uh, I also have a Patreon, so you get to hear this way before I've posted it for free on patreon.com slash Tony Mazer. Subscribe today for just five bucks a month. Without further ado, my interview, my conversation with Joe Rayola. What a day. I punched a Dago, I belted a coon, and kicked a mick. See, Starch, it all evens up. Yesterday you complained you had a beard day. I'll get the phone. Hey, listen to me, you teddy rotten heeb. I had it with you pushy Jews. You ain't seen one kike, you've seen them all. Starchy? Who's that on the phone? My father. Boy, I hate all kinds of Jews. Orthodox, reformed... But Starchy, your father is Protestant. They're the worst kind. Pleased to be joined by this guest here. I've wanted to talk to him for a number of years, and... He really has kind of done anything in the comedy industry, especially from performing stand-up to writing comedy from uh, and, and just doing so many uh, uh, different things, like from when you're, whether you're talking about the joy of censorship, the annual John Lennon tribute, uh, and then, of course, being who he eventually ended up becoming the senior editor 33 years at Mad Magazine, and it's Joe Rayola. And Joe, thanks so much for doing this. Thanks, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. So, uh, you know, I, I pulled you out. Uh, I don't Are you on the West Coast or East Coast right now? I'm in New York. Okay, so you're in New York. Okay, so we're so I didn't wake you up too early, shake you out of the hay so we can go back and talk old war stories of working at MAD and everything. But, uh, the, you know, the reason is because um, I feel like I'm one of those. I'm 33, so I was of the generation of MAD where it's the post-Bill Gaines era. Mm. And it, but no matter what, even when Gaines was alive, I still went into the treasuries, like the 70s and the 60s and the 80s decade treasuries, and I really enjoyed them. So it didn't really matter. Like, I only knew about Bill Gaines because I would see a couple of pictures of him and some caricatures of him as God in the clouds and everything. <laughs> but I'm, and then eventually, when I did research, I'm like, oh, that's why. And all those little things that start popping up uh, in Mad, like, no matter how much the, the magazine costs, it says cheap and the, the mad zeppelin and everything all those running gags throughout the strip i really enjoyed so i'm of the post games generation that in some ways has gotten you know over the years and and the one of the big things and i think you were the one who said it in a previous interview by saying that everyone goes through a phase where they go boy mad used to be so much better when i was younger and it's no good anymore but you are quick to tell people it says well yeah it's because you're maturing and we're staying the same immature age i think the first um time that mad was said it was not as funny as it used to be was with issue number two (laughs) not as good as it was when i was reading it i guess there's um it's been said that your favorite era of mad is the era in which you discovered it Mm. And I think there is something to that. I, I do think if you look at Mad historically, there are years or there are eras that were better than other 
other eras, just like there were seasons of Saturday Night Live that were better than other seasons, if you step back and look at it objectively. But if you're a kid and you fell in love with Mad during a time when Mad wasn't considered great, that's probably still your favorite period of Mad. Yeah, and but what's interesting is how it spanned the generations. Where if you have boys like my, like me and, and then my dad, and I would go to my, I go to my grandparents' house, and I would go in the basement, and I would look through old Sports Illustrateds, and there's old time. I, I'm probably trying to find a Playboy, who knows? And then I, I come across these old Mad magazines, and I'm like, and then you start flipping through them. And what's amazing about Mad is that I'm you're talking about right now maybe about. 99 2000 for me that i'm looking through my grandma's basement for these and i'm reading i'm like wow it's dick beat d bartolo it's al jaffe it's these are the same people my dad grew up grew up yeah. reading and being a it, what i found amazing with mad was that no matter how many people have come and gone from mad as far as the the viewer or, or the readers i should say uh it was a lot of it was the same people that were drawing and writing this and they kept everything fresh and it was it seriously was incredible and to this day al jaffe is a hundred years old still yeah. with us and up until a couple of years ago was still with mad and still doing the fold-ins yeah there were something like seven or eight contributors who had were with mad for over a half century which is a Astonishing, uh, Al Jaffe being one of them. I mean, Jaffe was walking fold-ins into the office at 97 years old. Al was the kind of guy, he'd get a standing ovation just for walking in the room. I used to tease him, the only man in America, in American history, who when filling out his taxes under occupation can put as his occupation fold-in artist. Only one who could do that. Just a a generational talent and one of several generational talents who were illustrating for Med. Mort Drucker would be one, Jack Davis, Don Martin, Dave Berg, Antonio Prochias. They were all extraordinarily gifted comic illustrators. I want, that's why I wanted to talk about you uh, next because I, I eventually want to talk about more about Bill Gaines and about Feldstein and uh, Kurtzman is that Growing up for me, it was always the cartoons you would see. Like when you're a kid and you are at the newsstand and you see a you see a Mad Magazine and you fall in love with the cartoon. And then as you get older, you look at the cartoon, but you really appreciate the writing too. And I, yeah. I I've talked to a number of people who were the same way, where it's that metamorphosis. You see the the Paul Cokers and the Jack Davises, and then you go, "Wow, this is great." But then you look at what D, Dick D. Bartolo and what you and Arnie Kogan and some of these other writers, you said, "This is brilliant." writing too so so you're going into going wow that's that, that looks just like jerry seinfeld that looks just like uh you know uh, harrison ford but then you're reading what it's about and you go and, and it it almost seemed like everything clicked and as somebody who eventually got into radio and stand-up comedy uh it was perfect for me and it was also horrible for me because i think it all warped my sense of humor from a young age i could have gone i could have been a doctor someday then i read mad and i went to community college <laughs> well, there is no doubt that the greatest asset the mad artists had were the mad writers. And I say this with all respect to Mort Drucker and Jack Davis uh, and Sam Viviano, Mike Powell, who was a great uh, mad uh, comic illustrator of television shows and, and uh, movie satires as well. They were all 
to, to a large degree told what to draw. It always started with the writing. It started those movie satires and television satires. They started with Arnie Kogan. They started with Stan Hart. They started with Dick D. D Bartolo. And those guys were extraordinary talents. And for me, and I guess I was unusual in this sense, when I first fell in love with Mad, it wasn't the look of Mad that first got me hooked. It was the writing. It was Frank Jacobs. The uh, And Frank died just a few months ago, mm -hmm. Frank wrote over 500 pieces for, for mad. And I remember, I actually remember what it was. It was, um, off we go into the lunchroom yonder, shoving girls out of the way, forward boys moving down that counter, hurry up, fill the tray, try the beans. They were prepared last Friday and the meat is tough as a mule. Their bread's got mold, the soup is cold, yuck, anything beats the lunchroom at our school. I didn't memorize that for this interview. I still know it. <laughs> and, and that's what made me fall in love with Mad Frank, and and that was my portal. And then I then I loved I loved Don Martin as 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 a kid, and Spy vs. Spy as well. And the thing about it, you're right; those contributors stayed with Mad for decades. So there was a remarkable consistency that you wouldn't have with Saturday Night Live, for example. If someone, if a cast member at SNL is there four or five years, that's a long time. No one, with the exception of Lorne Michaels. <laughs> or Keenan okay, Thompson well, at this point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But generally speaking, there's turnover there, understandably so. At MAD, people stayed. Talents. Yeah, it was, and then when you look at the writers and artists who did the same thing, so the Dave Bergs of the world and, and Don Martin, you, it, so you, when you would see who it is at the top, you say, oh, they did both of them, and it was incredible, and Al Jaffe did those, so he wasn't just the fold-in guy, he was also the snappy answers to stupid comebacks, and uh, it, or stupid questions, and it was, uh, it was incredible yeah, when you see, see a couple of them that would cross over and do uh, both the writing and the drawing. Yeah, you know, that was one of Mad's strengths and after a while to some degree it became a bit of a weakness too because there were periods listen think about the, the mad run from 1952 to 2017 it's a it's a 65 year run not every stretch as i said before was great and it certainly did reach a point i think where mad did feel stale because it was somewhat formulaic. It was the same guys again and again. Even though you love your family, sometimes you want to have a friend over for dinner, you know? So <laughs> the, the, the magazine needed to change. It needed to evolve uh, in, order to, in order to continue to attract new, new fans and be relevant. I mean, the med voice did change. Something about it remained the same. But it, it it didn't remain exactly the same over the years. It had to evolve, and it did. It was familiar, and uh, for me, as somebody who, then you start to look at some of the people that were uh, contributors, or they were like kind of full time mad people, but they also did other things, like you, like so many, like Arnie Kogan did t television writing, and Dick as well, and um, even uh, even the later years where you had um, uh, Monroe. 
where uh, Anthony Barbieri, who also was in Windy City Heat and did things with uh, with Jimmy Kimmel as well, you yeah. go, oh, he was also the writer with Bill Ray, and Bill Ray used to draw for Ren and Stimpy. So it was always it was like this crossing of the universe with so many people, and everybody kind of had this hand in Mad over the years. And I, I think a lot of it, especially in the years that I was growing up and maybe a little before, they were the fans of Mad. So they were the ones that when they were five to 15, 20 years old reading Mad, and then they got a job for Mad. So it's like, <clears throat> it, it's kind of that breath of fresh air of people who were like, oh no, hang on a second, I'm a fan of this and I would love to contribute because I think I can add a similar element and then take it a step further. Yeah, and the TV writers like Tony Barbieri and in the earlier days of Mad, Stan Hart, Arnie Kogan, who I mentioned uh, before Dick DiBartolo would fall into this category to some degree as well. They all had vibrant careers in, in television and they really didn't need to write for Mad. They wanted to write for Mad. Th that that changed over the years. I, Mad in its later years was much uh, better positioned to attract illustrators. It was more difficult to Mad for Mad to attract writers because writers were always chasing bigger paydays, more glamorous paydays than MAD could offer. So there weren't as many television writers contributing to MAD in its later days, but for a long time, that was definitely the case because there was certain there was a certain cachet and a deep affection for MAD that made writers want to be there. So how did you get into this? I'm assuming you were a fan growing up of MAD, and then eventually you started right around, uh, you started in, what, about 85? That was when Feldstein was on his way out, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, my 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 pal Charlie Cato and I sold our first Mad piece in '84, and at that time we were working with National Lampoon alumni on uh, a magazine spoof called Cosmo Parody, uh, and we started submitting to Mad at that point, and we sold right off the bat. And there's always a little bit of luck involved in things like this. Uh, Al Feldstein, who you mentioned, had been editor since uh, Harvey Kurtzman left. Probably Al took over in 1956. He'd been there 28 years and was retiring to live a quiet life in Wyoming. And Charlie and I were basically brought in on the bottom end of the editorial ladder to replace Al when he was on the way out the door. We were very fortunate. And then, so you, I mean, because you were somebody that, I mean, you may have read Mad and you were a fan of Mad, but you never thought you would actually be a part of it. You always wanted to be a stand-up comic. That's absolutely true. To this day, I think of myself more as a performer than than a writer. It wasn't a goal to be at Mad. I'd been floundering on the stand-up scene. It was, you know, I came out of the stand-up scene in the late 70s and the early 80s with some very marginal success at a time when, comedians were breaking big i mean I, I was on the i was on the bill with eddie murphy before he was on snl and there was a lot of big name people who would go on to be big name talents on on the on the stand-up scene then and these guys were animals i mean they they'd work five six nights a week three or four sets a night it's what they did it's they dedicated their life and i just never was able to put myself into the stand-up world that fully i never felt fully comfortable in the stand-up world, uh, I wanted to do a longer form kind of stage work. Um, so I don't think I was ever going to have my break through the clubs like a lot of guys then did. For Charlie and myself, the break ended up coming 
with the National Lampoon alumni, and that was a doorway to to mad for us. Yeah, because that was where, when you look back in those days of the comedy boom of the late 70s and the comedy store and Catch a Rising Star, and uh, it seemed like by the, by the point in the mid to late 80s, everybody had their comedy special or they were featured on Evening at the Improv. And there were some guys who could do it and some guys that tried it did fairly well but found their niche elsewhere. Like I always think of uh, kind of your stories like Maurice LaMarche where Maurice was also a stand-up comic and did the great, obviously, the Orson Welles impression, but then it just, he, he had a lot of tragedy in his life, and it took him in a different direction of doing uh, voiceover work, and that's what he's been doing for the last 30 years. So sometimes you got to keep an open mind and, and can't just go, look, this stand-up thing is going to pay all my bills and I need to keep working at it. Sometimes you got to go, like, doing a podcast, doing stage performances, writing, drawing, uh, some kind of performing, that you got to always have that open mind. And it really is, for me, doing stand-up at night and doing the podcasting and also doing radio, it's like, don't quit your day job at this time. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I, you know, I, I drove a, a cab in New York City for seven years. And uh, one night I'm, I'm parked outside Penn Station and Buddy Hackett gets into my cab. <laughs> now, but he was stepping out of Penn Station. He had taken the train back from Vegas because he, he didn't fly. He, at that. Was, was he packing? Uh, he was notoriously known for having a gun on him. I, I, I didn't ask, but... <laughs> But he had a lot of luggage. At any rate, it's Buddy Hackett. And he lives in Roosevelt Island, which is about, you know, it's a 45-minute ride from Penn Station. So Buddy Hackett was in my cab for a while. And I remember there were ads on TV in that uh, in that, uh, that era. See, Buddy Hackett and Sandy Hackett at the at the Mirage or wherever they were playing. They were Tropicana. Playing, wherever they were playing in Vegas. At any rate... I'm floundering. This is before the National Lampoon work, but I've got my stuff with me. I've got sketches. I've got the radio comedy I was doing. I've got a packet with me in case I pick up Buddy Hackett. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm prepared. So I, I say, hey, Buddy, I'm a comedian. I'm a comedy. And I, and I tanned up. You got to look at this stuff that I, he said, I don't, he wouldn't look at it. So I don't, I, I don't want it. He goes, look, I, I know you don't want to hear this, but I, I, I can't help you. I, I, I don't hire anybody. I, I write for myself. I like working alone. There's, there's nothing I could do for you. And I asked him a, a, a bold question. By the way, the story you just told me is what's bringing this to mind. So I asked him, I got to ask you a question then. How does someone break into this business whose name isn't Sandy Hackett? I thought that was a pretty ballsy mm -hmm. question. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, you have to love comedy so much that you're willing to do it for no money and no recognition. And if you're willing to do it for no money and no recognition, I think comedy is a very good career path for you. And if you don't, I think you should quit now. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that's pretty sage for Buddy Hackett. <laughs> uh, that stayed with me. You know, he level set. I don't remember a damn thing about the rest of the ride. I don't remember if he was a good tipper or not. I guess he was, or I would have remembered that. But that really stayed with me. It's a it's a nasty, nasty business. It really is a difficult business to find your way in. Well, and it's interesting you mentioned about National Lampoon because that was the you know main competitor. And I mean, outside of cracked, of course, but like National Lampoon took 
what Mad did a step further, and of course then uh, Al Goldstein took it even further than that, but uh, but you had something like uh, National Lampoon that you're coming out of the 70s, and this is this is after the Vietnam War. You have this is the Baby Boomer magazine. These are college kids. The, the the material is really over the edge, and even by today's standards, it's over the edge. Uh, so you came from that camp first before Mad, right? Yes, uh, and that was kind of accidental too, because I was never a huge Lampoon fan. I mean, I saw Lemmings live, and I, I listened to the radio hour. I mean, I knew the the, the Lampoon stuff. Uh, but again, never imagined that I would be working with with those guys. And, you know, you're right. I mean, for a period of time, I mean, you know, Lampoon completely obliterated Mad as the go to comedy magazine. You know, Mad was for kids. Lampoon was doing stuff that Mad would never do. Photo funnies. And also Lampoon was written by younger people. They were they were able to actually spoof the new James Taylor record or they'd be able to make fun of the John Lennon in a way the mad guys couldn't you know the mad guys were tin pan alley guys so they didn't have the same view of the youth culture that Lampoon did and the and the and of course the the the, the incredible talent that Lampoon had when it launched and that which led to all those movies and Saturday Night Live and all that it was it was a remarkable time. The interesting thing to me when considering Lampoon and Mad, and Mad definitely did influence Lampoon, and Lampoon right took Mad to a place where it could never go. It was a new kind of comedy. Lampoon burnt out. And that's not surprising when you think about it. It was more of a shooting star. Mad would reinvent itself in a way. Mad would have really great creative days after Lampoon was gone. I mean, that's the thing about Mad. 65 years, that's a long run for a humor magazine. Um, Spy was the other one during Mad's run. But I think of Lampoon and Spy as the only two other really great humor magazines during, during Mad's 65 years. Well, and it kept its integrity because, in my opinion, because I look at National Lampoon and you're talking about an era of the teen sex comedies and it just was, it was the right magazine for its time, but it was too hot. I mean, you're talking about the Andrew Dice Clay days and the Sam Kinison days where it was profitable now to be shocking, where you can drop F-bombs, you can show nudity, and you can go into these taboo subjects without, you know, batting an eye. And it was it was more accepted at that time, but even well, um, Kinison ended up dying before his true downfall. But even Dice had a number of years where he had to kind of reinvent himself. National yeah. Lampoon really didn't. They kept going with the teen sex stuff through the '90s and into the 2000s, where they almost became parodies of themselves. I almost thought that that Jack Davis and all of them should have been doing parodies of National Lampoon by that point because they were a, a walking, talking parody, in my opinion. Yeah, well, you know, I think Lampoon, listen, there's another Lampoon mad analogy to make. Lampoon's great days, the the classic era of Lampoon is the 70s into the early 80s. It's the years of Tony Hendra and David Kasel and Sean Sean Kelly and, and all those guys. When the talent pool left, 
you know, National Lampoon Radio Hour was, uh, uh, well, my John Belushi, I'm getting Belushi's name, sign of age, <laughs> Belushi and Aykroyd, they were all, Gilder, Gilder Radner, they were all involved in the Lampoon Radio Hour. When that talent pool dispersed, Lampoon was never as good as it was in its first eight or nine years. Yeah. There was, there was just no way. That, that was a generational, generationally great talent pool that that they that they had. And I make the analogy to Mad as in the following sense: when the Mad team was removed from Mad, this odd thing kind of happened. Mad, when it moved to the West Coast, became the last impersonator of of Mad. Yeah. That, that, whatever that was, it had a mad logo on it, and Alfred E. Newman was on the cover, but that wasn't mad. That was another imitation because you really can't separate talent from product. Yeah. And people forget about how uh, just revolutionary Mad was. I mean, to the point where they're featured on uh, McCarthy blacklists at that time. It, like when when you pick up a Mad in two thousand nine, for example, that's the, also the same magazine that was dealing with McCarthy and the and censorship way back in the fifties and into the sixties. Yeah, and the FBI, uh, you know, the Mad guys in the. Sixties. This is pretty well documented. They their their taxes were all audited. Uh, yeah, Med was very subversive or considered subversive, and and it was way ahead of its times. No question about it. It was a revolutionary force, and not many revolutionary forces endure. Yeah, but Med. And uh, so eventually, so it's 1985 now. You're contributing to Mad now. You're you're a member of them. Uh, talk about talk a little bit about Bill Gaines. Your first meeting with him, and so he was around about seven years of the first seven years you were with Mad before he passed away in '92. And yeah. I, there's a great obviously there's a great interview for I encourage people to check out with Bob Costas and later very poor quality on YouTube, but it's a very good interview. But talk about Bill Gaines, your relationship with him, and that and I I, I heard you tell the story of your first meeting with him. Well, he, Gaines, the thing you must know about Gaines is he was insane. He was really insane. It was not a, it's not a, it was not an act. He, he was out of his mind in, in, a, in, a, in a wonderful way. Um, when we were hired, first going into Gaines's office, uh, it was like, um, did, you, did you see the movie a, a, Apocalypse Now? Oh, yeah. Colonel Colonel Kurtz, mm -hmm. played by Brando, the just crazy person on the outskirts of the war. It was like it was kind of like that. <laughs> it was like going to some out, outpost of a of of a mad king. And uh, I remember this very very fondly. Charlie and I we sit down in front of Gaines's desk, and you know he's got the mane of hair, and he's leaning back in the chair, and this is the King Kong, the gorillas hanging into the. And the air conditioners were in the air conditioner. He ran that air conditioner 365 days a year on the coldest day. That air conditioner was. I asked him why once, and he said, "Because I'm 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 old and I'm fat and I want to cool off." Um, but in any case, this first meeting, he he says to us, John and Nick. He's referring to editors John Ficarra and Nick Meglin. John and Nick 
uh, tell me that you boys are very talented. I don't believe them. Therefore, I propose to pay you as little as possible. <laughs> uh, and did he? I, he did. I, I, he, <laughs> he, he did. I, I believe it was, I have to check my records, I believe it was $75 a day. But that was that was the that that was that that was his job offer to us, and we didn't accept it immediately. We said, "Thank you very much. Can we get back to you?" Which was pretty. I don't know where we got the balls to do that. We were offered to dig it mad, and we said, "You know, let's think about it." And we came back with a counter offer. We said, "You know, we're we're busy. <laughs> we're really busy." We'd like to work three days a week. Charlie will come in on Monday and Wednesday and Friday, and I'll come in on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. You'll have us, one of us every day, you'll have us both one day. That was that was editorial meeting day. And Danes said yes, because he, because he, he's cheap. It was a chance to him to pay us less. So <laughs> he said yes, and we ended up working three days a week, which you couldn't have asked for a better gig, because for me, that allowed me time to get back on the, get back performing again and find my voice on stage and start uh, performing, which was important to me. But as jobs go, you, you really, you couldn't beat that one. What I, what I found interesting about the post-Gains era is that the influx of the advertisements in the magazine. And for somebody who grew up reading old mads and you look through them, the only ads were there were parody ads. And yeah. so Bill, so basically that magazine was built upon and you guys were paid via subscription as opposed to uh, being an advertising agency uh, that, that sponsors uh, pages in there. Yeah, it became an unsustainable model. And there's a, there's a well-told story out there that's completely wrong, <laughs> that corporate, corporate forced the ads on us. Actually, the decision to begin to accept advertising in MAD was ours. And we decided to accept advertising because we wanted the magazine to go color. And yep. in order to, in order, I mean, the magazine, the joke used to be, it looked like it was printed in Mexico in 1957. <laughs> we wanted the, we wanted to be a color magazine in a full color world. And in order to do that, the only way we could do that would, would be to increase revenue through ads, so we decided to do it. And actually, if you look at that over the years, the ads began to fall away anyway, as magazines got more and more specialized, Mad's demographic wasn't suited to ad advertisers because our readers were so many different ages that we eventually lost most of the ads anyway. Now, what was the classic story? Was it, uh, was it the Philippines or what country was it where there was one subscriber and you guys took a mad trip to this country to hand deliver <laughs> the subscription? That wasn't. That that was Haiti. Haiti, that was it. It was Haiti, and this is way before my time. This was the maybe the first mad trip, or if not the first, among the first, that um, came to Gaines's attention that there was one mad subscriber in Haiti. <laughs> so he decided to have the mad trip. He would go and gather the freelancers and staff once a year and take them on all expenses paid trips around the world. And one was to Haiti, and they decided they were going to go to this house directly and ask him to resubscribe personally. <laughs> and Gaines crowed that the trip was a big success because not only did he subscribe, they got one of his neighbors to subscribe. So as Gaines put it, we doubled our subscription 
base in in Haiti. And that's a that's a great game story because it speaks to his the guy was a walking bag of contradictions. He just said he's known for being cheap. Mad was always cheap. He, you know, he was a skinflint. He would he would walk around every month with bills, bills. He, he, if you made a 16 cent phone call to your chiropractor in Scarsdale, he'd make you pay for it. He, he genuinely was cheap. On the other hand, he was incredibly generous. As Bill said, he was penny, he, uh, he was penny foolish, it was a pound wide. Pound wise, penny foolish. No, he was pound foolish, but penny wise. He'd watch the pennies, but not the big, the big stuff. So he'd take us to Europe, but he'd charge us for our phone calls every every month. That's incredible. That was, and th- those mad trips. What was your favorite mad trip? Uh, probably the first one, which was to uh, Zermatt. We went to uh, Zermatt, Switzerland, and Paris. And that was uh, that was 1987, I think. And un- understand that I'm a mad editor at this point, but it was the first time I met a lot of the writers and con- contributors. I hadn't met Frank Jacobs before then. I hadn't met Sergio Aragones before then. I mean, Sergio may have come in the office once, but you know, the freelancers, the writers, and the artists are all over the country. Dave Berg, I met Dave Berg on that trip for the, for the first time. It was a real method to this madness because it was a real bonding thing. We got to meet the artists and writers we were working with. Remember, it was the age before FaceTime. It was the age before Zoom. You spoke to these guys on on the phone now and then, and that was it. So these trips were big deals. So what was uh, so you got a chance to meet a lot of them? Uh, what was Gaines's relationship with a lot of them, and what was your relationship with a lot of these artists? Were there some that because you mentioned that some of these you grew up reading and, and and looking at and going like, wow, I can't believe this is Jack Davis. I can't believe this is you know Paul Coker and all all, all these. Uh, I mean, Mark Drucker would draw something that you would think is lifelike next to you. It was incredible. And so you're essentially meeting your heroes uh, from childhood. Now you get that opportunity. What was your relationship, especially writing and editing for them? And then what was Gaines's relationship, especially when you didn't have a lot of turnover, like we said, that these guys stuck around for decades? Uh, I interacted as an editor much more with writers than I did with artists. Um, you know, artists, we provide art, art notes too. Um, Mort would send in pencils, the staff would review them, we'd give them notes, often the stuff was so great there was nothing much for him to do except go to go to ink from, from there. Um, so in terms of, of the pure artists, didn't have tremendous frequent interaction with them. Now cartoonists, it was different. Jaffe we'd work with directly because Al's writing gags and illustrating them as well. With Dave Berg, the process was intensive. I mean, Dave, my God, Dave, he used to he used to write probably 150 gags to get 20 or 20 or wow or 25. I mean, he that guy was relentless just to so get more, just to get Roger Kaputnik. <laughs> just exactly. So more interaction <laughs> with writers uh, and Gaines's relationship with the artists. I'm going to say that was more complex. I mean, you know because Gaines was with them for so long. A lot of them loved him, but he also got into feuds, most famously with Don Martin, who left Mad to to work for Crack. Um, in the early days, you know, Bill kept all the artwork. 
a practice that became frowned up, upon as time went went on. So uh, th there was some bitterness with some artists with with Bill because they felt that that he wasn't returning what was theirs. That changed later, um, but that certainly was a bone of con con contention. I'm probably not the best person to speak to that aspect of of, of things. Um, but I know it was definitely an issue. So Bill passed away in 1992. You've got, uh, obviously, Kurtzman's been gone for, at that point, gosh, you know, 30-something years. And Fel Al Feldstein leaves uh, about seven years earlier and retires. What was your feeling at that time, the direction of MAD, that, I mean, Gaines has been with them from the EC days. And... Well, like the, because eventually a couple of years later, then you had Mad TV was out there, but it really was not. It wasn't the television version outside of the spy versus spy uh, kind of, uh, you know, in, inlets that were kind of were in Mad TV. But it really was a separate thing. Just kind of used the name. But what what did you feel uh, the direction of Mad was going in at that time after Gaines died? We were in a very limbic state at that point. It was very unclear. Um, because we didn't know who was in charge. So there was a period of almost a year. It was unclear who was running mad uh, on, on the business end. Uh, we were in Warner Brothers, but it was unclear what division. And um, I think, at, you know, again, in that early, right after Bill's death, there was a kind of shock about that, even though Bill was not in good, in, in, in good health. And I say mad kind of, there wasn't some immediate change. It pretty much stayed the course for, for a short period anyway. And then uh, DC Comics took, took over and that began the long tension between MAD and corporate forces that didn't resolve until MAD was moved to the West Coast in mm. 2017. DC uh, was a mixed bag. It was not in many ways a great fit for um, Mad, um, this idea that, first of all, Mad's not a comic book. Mad, Mad was a comic book for 23 issues. It stopped being a comic book in 1950, 55. Uh, the idea that Mad was part of the DC universe was, was kind of odd to us. We, I, I likened uh, DC Comics to the Borg. Are you a Star, Star Trek fan? A you little know? bit, yeah, I know what you mean. Well, the Borg, the, the, you know, the Borg was always about assimilating. We always felt that they wanted to assimilate us, and we felt it was incredibly important that we retain our independence to keep the spirit of what we were doing alive. And that set up a tension. Now, some good things came out of DC taking over because MAD did need to change. It, it really did need, it needed to go color. It needed to, the, the voice of the MAD, needed to evolve it needed new new, new talent and Jeanette Kahn uh, who took over the title as editor-in-chief which I always struck me as a little odd because Jeanette with all due respect to her she never wrote for the magazine she never edited for the magazine I don't know I don't think that so I don't know why she was called editor-in-chief but she's president and, and she's really kicked our ass she really spurred us on to bring new talent in to she wanted a reinvented mad there was a kind of a much ballyhooed relaunch i think in 1997 but but really that was kind of in a way forced i don't think mad really started to turn a creative corner in, in a big way 
in a big way until 1998-99 with the Mad 20. With the coming of the Mad 20, which was our our annual uh, rundown of the 20 dumbest people, things, things, uh, events, and um, people, places, and events of the year, that was a turning point because a new voice was emerging and also a new kind of visual humor. We were much more focused on high-impact pieces, and I think that turning point led to the Fundalini um, section of the magazine, which came later, which was new front of the book content that we never had before, the, 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 strip, the strip club. And MAD also regained the political, its political voice. It never really lost its political voice, but it, it sharpened its political voice as it went on. And certainly during the Trump years, uh, you know, our last years at MAD, we were relentless uh, and I think that, I mean, one of the things that I'm, I'm kind of proudest of when we left the magazine uh, at the end of 2017, Rolling Stone called Mad the best magazine of political satire in the country. So we, we left a magazine in, that was really sharp, that was relevant, um, that was funny, and uh, that we were all proud of and in the tradition of Mad also. You couldn't you couldn't have picked a better president <laughs> to, to go out on when it comes to political satire than him. That's true, but we really understood that that he was a that he was a threat. Mm. And if you look at the Mad covers in that era, I don't know, like something like seven out of nine Mad covers or something, Trump was on the cover. I don't know that I don't know if corporate liked that all that much, but that is what really kept Mad relevant yeah there was still fart and belching humor and fat jokes and things like that there was plenty of the adolescent humor and the gross humor that was still part of it but we were really leading with the social satire and the political humor for the last years i was there and that's really what made it so much fun yeah that was uh and it, it kind of had that political commentary that you would get from the nixon years so it was almost like it came not full circle but it harkened back to those days where it was it was nice to go back and you get that you get that satire that i think a lot of maybe a lot of kids didn't really get because i you know we, we grew got that growing up from mad i would say i got my political satire growing up from reading mad and watching something like rocky and bullwinkle which Rocky and Bullwinkle was just phenomenal political satire that you don't even realize when you're a kid that you're watching. And that's what it is, is satire is great when it's not beaten over your head with. If it's subtle and if it's funny, and and that's what Mad was able to provide for so many years, not just political satire, but just, you know, pop culture, Hollywood satire, and it was fantastic. And that's why it's, uh, you know, there is a, no matter what and what anyone has said over the years about MAD and, oh, it's not as good as it used to be. Well, of course it's not as good as it used to be because you've grown up, as we said earlier. And it, it, uh, it what's interesting is, though, uh, the it stayed true to who it was throughout the entire tenure. Like you said about Rolling Stone with that great, and, and keeping that integrity where you didn't do a, a national lampoon where you just put a bunch of tits and ass on the screen and said, oh, hey, here's the, you know, here's this. And then you weren't like uh, Al Goldstein where he would have Screw Magazine where they would just basically. Now, there wasn't there. There was a big weren't Gaines and Goldstein like good friends. And then there was a, like a big time falling out at that time. <laughs> Uh, there was there was no falling out. They were really good friends. What happened was, <laughs> it's a great game story. 
<laughs> uh, Goldstein did it, devoted a part of an issue to mad characters. So he showed, you know, he showed Alfred E. Newman getting laid and, you know, you know, Roger Kaputnik getting a blowjob. I mean, you know, <laughs> he, just, he just did this, you know, obscene stuff with the mad characters. So Gaines wrote him a letter. Because Gaines had to cover his corporate ass. So mm-hmm. I, I, I actually have the letter here. It's a great letter. <laughs> you know, basically said, Al, we're dear friends, but you, you, you've you hurt the mad brand. This is damaging to our business model. I'm going to have to insist that you remove all these issues with it, with, with, within a week or I'll have to take more action. When he knew full well that Screw was a weekly and it would be it would be taken off the, off the stands and anyway, but as far as I know, Alan, Alan Goldstein, uh, Alan Bill uh, never had a serious falling out. They were, they were great friends to the end. And Goldstein idolized Gaines. He just idolized him. He, in a way, he wanted to be Gaines. The thing about it is Gaines was loved and Goldstein was kind of feared. But that, that it makes a really interesting friendship. I couldn't imagine going to some of those uh, probably lunches at uh, wasn't it Grandpa Al Lewis had a restaurant and that they would go there and it was like some weird country western type of style that he would have that I I, I would just to be a fly on the wall with some of those luncheons. They they enjoyed eating together. Uh, Gaines, uh, Al Goldstein, and Lyle Stewart. Uh, they enjoyed eating and trying to lose weight together, and then they put it back on and and try to lose weight. Um, but yeah, those guys were all ca- characters. And it is interesting to you know uh, think about Goldstein and Gaines in that sense. I mean, they were both important figures in terms of the First Amendment. Uh, radically different areas, granted, but I mean, that's, that's one of the things about MAD. MAD could have gone out of business in the 50s. Remember, it was the only EC title that survived when uh, Gaines shut down EC, and the only reason it survived is because it became a, a, a magazine. When you talk about censorship, and I get to you with, with your show, which you've toured in Ohio, out of 44 states, uh, Ohio is one of them. Um, yeah. But uh, as far as censorship goes, I always thought it was interesting with MAD because there wouldn't be F-bombs, there wouldn't be like filthy language in there, but there'd be occasional nudity that you would see in MAD. And I'm like... This is an interesting version of censorship where it's kind of the opposite where uh, it seemed like in movies where or on television that you would blur out the nipples, but you can say fuck and shit and whatever else. out. It was like the opposite when it came to the to this. Was that a self-imposed censorship because of corporate or was this kind of a because you see it in like, for example, regular radio, where you would say something without saying it. You would go to the edge and be creative with your words and make that theater of the mind without just clubbing you over the head with what you're trying to say. There were never words that corporate told us that we couldn't use. Uh, the, the decision to stay away from fucking shit and all that was our, our call. We didn't think that 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 was in the mad tradition and we decided we were going to stay away from it. We would argue about words now and then. We'd argue about whether a particular word can be used, you know, if we're going to use nuts or, you know, kick them in the nuts or whatever. And the, and the language did evolve over time, but we were never into the F-bombs at mad. And with nudity, yeah, there'd be nudity in mad, but we would, the nudity would, would uh, almost always be in, in context, meaning if we were spoofing a movie and there was a nude scene in the movie, then 
that scene would appear in Mad Nude, or if we were spoofing a scantily clad celebrity, Madonna, for example, then we might show her nude. But generally speaking, other than that, there, there wasn't, we didn't think that there was gratuitous nudity. Yeah, a lot and, of it was more of like a cartoonish nudity as opposed to this is Mort Drucker with like a perfect vulva and nipples that look like 3D that are coming out at you. It's like, no, it was kind of very cartoon. It was like the Paul Coker drawings where they're they're very, you know, two-dimensional and you go, okay, so, you know, I'm not going to sit there and people aren't going to get the wrong idea and take it into the bathroom with them. <laughs> and and we'd still get flack, you know, we would still get flack uh, for nudity now, now and then or whatever. I mean, it's, I, I remember there was a, there was a back page of a, uh, there was a, maybe the first time there was full frontal nudity in that. It was a cartoon. It may have been a Paul Coker cartoon, in fact, or a fisherman catches a, a topless mermaid and, um, and he's all excited and he's the, and the press gathers and it's a big story. And in the last panel, the guy's mother has cooked the mermaid and is serving the mermaid to the, the uh, family. And uh, I remember when that came out, there were, we got about 20 or 30 letters from angry parents saying, oh, you know, Bill Gaines is turning over in his grave. And actually, it was a reprint that had appeared when Gaines was alive and well. It had appeared as a spe- in, in a, in a special when i was an editor but it had actually gone back years earlier and uh so the, you know there's always stuff like that where where, where people are going to be upset and I, I remember talking to bill about that about you know parental outrage we we, we long believed as john ficaro often said parental approval is the kiss of death for us we never wanted parents to approve of mad on the other hand Gaines frequently said that he thought mad was nothing but a positive uh, influence on, on kids. So, you know, those may sound contradictory, but I think that's part of what made, what made Mad great. Sure warped me. I mean, and especially when you think of DC Comics, you think of Batman, Superman, and Alfred E. Newman. <laughs> well, that's good. I mean, one of those, you know, who does not belong in this picture? Uh, Batman, Superman, Alfred E. Newman. Again, to me, that was always a strange somewhat of a strange because man was all about making fun of that world mm-hmm. and 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 the comic book guys i say this with all due respect to any comic book guys listening they took themselves very seriously it's a very serious thing what how superman's going to die or 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 whether aquaman should come out as gay <laughs> they really take these things seriously. And for us, it was all just something to make fun of. Yeah, and I was never comic book guy as far as reading you know, the, the, the Marvel comics or the DC comics. And it was interesting. I was at a Comic-Con recently, and my wife, we were walking around, and she's like, you were never comic guy. And I said, well, I liked... I like the, you know, I, I like Marmaduke, and I like the Mad Magazine comics, but I didn't, I didn't like the graphic design type, like the really good Superman, Spider-Man, those kind of comics. It was like, well, you know, I, I really enjoyed the lighter side of, and uh, a mad look at uh, such and such. So that's kind of what happened. So every time now, anytime we go to those comic cons, they'd have a bin of like old Mad magazines, then they have it in the sleeve. I'm like, oh boy, how much is that? Oh. I'd have to, might have to get that one. So I, I'm, I'm a mad collector. I think I have about two Alfred E. Newman T-shirts at home, and 
it's just, it, it, you know, it was, it was something that, uh, and I know a lot of people are going to really enjoy this interview that will go back in time. Although I will say, speaking of Alfred, uh, I, I, I got to ask you one more mad question because you weren't there, but when Up the Academy was originally yeah. Mad Magazine Presents Up the Academy, talk about, because <laughs> didn't Gaines, didn't he have the statue in his office that was featured in the movie that uh, blew up? Was that what it was? Like, talk about the, the mad relationship with Up the Academy, that that was supposed to be like the National Lampoon's Presents, and it's like, oh, well, if National Lampoon can do it, maybe we can attach ourselves and do uh, Mad Presents This and Mad Presents That. Someone convinced Gaines to compete with National Lampoon by lending Mad's name to this movie. And Mad was paid. Mad was given some kind of licensing fee. I believe it was $50,000. I could be wrong about that, but let's say $50,000 to so it would be Mad Magazine presents Up the Academy. And you're right, there was a statue that wasn't in Bill's office, but was in the Mad office Mm. and was there for all the time I was there. And that movie was a dog. That was a terrible movie. And everyone at Mad hated it and Gaines resented it. And in fact, on the statue, it said Mad Magazine presents Up the Academy. The P was covered up, so it said Mad Magazine presents Up the Academy. And Gaines despised it so much, he gave the money back. The licensing fee that Mad was paid to put its name on it, Gaines gave them the money back. So when the DVD came out, Mad's name would not be attached to it. And the, the one short scene in which the the statue of Alfred appeared would be removed because he wanted nothing to do with it. And Mad never did a movie again. And there was that creepy Alfred E. Newman, like he looked like one of the Ninja Turtles, like a Jim Henson puppet towards the end of the movie that that got digital taken out, right? Uh, I, I, I don't know that for a fact, but it wouldn't surprise me if it was taken out. Again, Gaines despised that movie and regretted that he was talked into being part of it. As a young, I believe, a young Ralph Macchio and directed by Robert Downey. Oh. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, I think it was Mad Magazine uh, presents Throw Up the Academy. I think that was the parody, right? You're, that's correct. You you are remembering (laughs) more of that movie than, than me. Uh, yeah, I've I've seen it. I I wouldn't recommend it. I'll say that. But but you know, thirty three years at Mad. That's a that's a fantastic career you had. But you're still going. You've got the joy of censorship. You're still doing the annual John Lennon tribute. Talk talk a little bit about that. How did that all come together? Well, the Lennon tribute started under the, the most the horrific circumstances imaginable. I yeah. mean, you know, with John being shot. In December of 1980, uh, I was a member uh, back then of a experimental performance workshop called Theater Within. And we were the neighborhood performance group on the Upper West Side on 72nd Street, just down the block from the Dakota where John and Yoko lived. And we really took it bad when John died. I mean, it just, we loved him. We loved him not just as a Beatle, we loved him as a neighbor not that we knew him but you know he was the famous artist in the neighborhood and uh, Lennon had famously gotten involved in primal therapy in the 1970s and the Plastic Ono Band album came out of that that one of the great albums of 
in rock, certainly, and um, Theater Within was experimental. A lot of the people in the group are working in this primal therapy mode as well. Uh, so identified with Lena and said, so it was devastating to us. And we just started this little neighborhood uh, tribute at the Theater Within studio. Uh, the first one was held in September 1981. It's hard to believe that that has evolved to what it has become over the years which is the longest John Lennon, annual John Lennon tribute concert in the world. The only one of its kind sanctioned by Yoko, attracting pretty big names now like Patti Smith and Roseanne Cash and Donovan and Joan Osborne and Betty LeVette and Jackson Brown and on and on. And, um, you know, I've been producing that for 40 years. Last year it was online. And this year we go back to uh, a live event in New York City and Theater Within still exists as a not-for-profit and we uh, provide workshops and um, and creativity and mindfulness for communities in need and we're really focusing now on the on the cancer community this year we'll provide over 200 free workshops including the Mad Art Workshop which is run by my old pal and the Mad Art Director uh, Sam Viviano who actually teaches the art of caricature to children teens and 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 adults which is pretty pretty cool so the Lennon tribute is is um yeah i've actually been doing the Lennon tribute i started the Lennon tribute before mad mad in 84 the Lennon tribute started in 81 that's incredible and getting those names and having that continue and especially for john lennon at that point he basically made new york his home and to have somebody from like you said essentially down the street and having that tragedy happen and keeping that going, having it sanctioned is just, it's, it's incredible. And, uh, uh, I, you know, do you have a date? You guys are going to do it again this year? We, I not at Liberty to announce that yet. Okay. We'll be in, in the fall. Uh, and the go-to place for that is LennonTribute.org or follow the Lennon Tribute Facebook uh, page and it'll all be posted there. It's a weird year because we're still coming out of COVID and it, everything that that, means and i'm looking forward to getting back out there myself i mean i haven't i haven't uh been in front of a live audience since february of 2020 wow well i'll i'll say this because i've done stand-up uh i've basically been doing it for now the last year consistently of being back on stage is ohio's a little bit more open than new york i'll say this audiences are so much better this time around Especially oh, really? for comedy, because knowing my material and what I've gone on stage with, eh, you kind of polarize an audience a little bit. These are people <laughs> who really want to be at the show. Before you would you would sometimes have a papered room, and that's like, oh boy, you know, my boyfriend's dragging me out here, and people would try to get offended. These are people that are saying. I want to get out. I thank God that you guys are actually doing a show. And they came to laugh and they came to have a good time. So I got to say, you know, they always say, don't blame. If you're not doing well, if you're bombing, don't blame it on the audience. This time around, the audiences are just fantastic. I'll say that. That's great to hear. That's really great, great to hear. I'm looking forward to getting back out there, hopefully in the fall. Uh, Joe, this has been fantastic, especially talking to you and talking about MAD, something that when I was a kid I wanted to submit to MAD. I got a chance to uh, – I've I've gotten to know uh, Drew Friedman over the years, and I've gotten to uh, talk off the air with uh, uh, Frank Santopadre about submitting stuff to MAD. And I remember the first time when I'm like – I finally have some things I really want to submit to MAD, and he sent me a message saying – uh, they're they're about to close up shop, so I, I don't think. And I'm like, 
it, it was in business for 60 years. And it's like going to see, like, you wanted to see something and all of a sudden, it, like, or you wanted to see Hamilton on Broadway and you're like, I can't wait to go. And, and then COVID hits or, oh, no, they're, they're ending their run. That's how I felt. So, uh, but, hey, if, if the closest thing is I get to talk to you, then, then so be it. Hey, thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you so much.